Thank you for downloading the Bristol Lectures podcast, brought to you by the University of the West of England. In this podcast, we are joined by Professor Lindsay Duthie, CEO of the Production Guild of Great Britain. Thank you to the University of the West of England for inviting me. Um, Thank you again for that amazing introduction. And thank you to Professor Jane Roscoe for putting me forward for this very distinguished series, which I'm absolutely honoured to um, be doing for you tonight. It's such a shame not to be in the auditorium and to be able to see your your faces, but it's fantastic. We can still keep moving forward and um, you know do this on a, on a video platform. Uh, I'm guessing the audience has students and graduates and some industry experts, some members of the public, um, and my mum and dad if they manage to get the uh, Zoom link working as well. So um, that would be great if they're on. Don't ask any questions, please, mum and dad. That that probably wouldn't go down well. Anyway, next slide, please, if if I may. So you've already heard a bit about some of the things I've worked on. I thought I'd give you a little flavour of some of the things that I've done before moving into the the main sort of topics of the lecture tonight. Um, As you see, I've worked for um, all of these broadcasters here. I have um, interviewed serial killers on death row, a a serial killer vampire in the States. I have made films about um, Britain's youngest dad, who was just 12 at the time. I have made food programs, which I think was much scarier than interviewing the vampires, that's for sure, when we had risotto rage on set and souffle sagas and all manner of things. So I've been really, really lucky. Um, I went straight from university to work at ITV, where I stayed for, for the best part of 10 years. But I say lucky, I worked incredibly hard, was incredibly determined, and, and hopefully I'll give some advice throughout this session um, and maybe through the questions as well that might help some students and graduates as, as they start forming their career um, and I have to say when I when I turned up at university um, you know obviously this is nearly 25 30 years ago I show my age a little bit um, I was suddenly thinking oh my goodness what have I done because it seemed like everybody else knew somebody in the industry or had a parent working in the industry and I suddenly thought how am I going to make this happen um, so had to really start understanding how to use networks and how to get on, on people's radar and, and work my way through. And obviously, being that old, we didn't have the Internet in quite the same way. So I think I probably wrote to, to TV execs on flowery paper or, or something, um, but managed eventually, after a lot of tenacity, sending hundreds of letters um, to get the work experience. And, and as I said, ended up at ITV and, and was determined not to leave really for, for a while. Um, Next slide, please, if I may. So as you heard, I started to do guest lectures and as part of my role in heads of departments and leading teams, um, started to run more training courses. And I sort of got sucked over to the the world of academia, which I absolutely loved. And and you'll see some of the um, institutions that I've worked for there. It was a great, um, great platform, a great privilege to work with young people at the start of their careers with all their passion and enthusiasm to to go and make some ambitious film with 50 pound budget. But they were determined they were still going to travel overseas and and do everything, which was which is fantastic. Um, And you have to always harness that ambition, which was great. Um, But it gave me an opportunity as well to still be developing my own research interests and my production um, contacts as well. And and as you heard, um, it led to me becoming the Professor of Media Education and Head of the Film, Media and Performing Arts School at the University for the Creative Arts, lots of creative arts um, in there. So, um, so, that, so that was a fantastic thing to do. Um, next slide, please. As part of my, as I said, as part of my research um, and and part of my academic um, role, I was always really keen to bring industry in. And that was, I suppose, my strength having come from from industry was to create those partnerships. Um, But I quickly noticed there was a gap in um, a gap in the market um, for a contemporary handbook looking at TV studio production. So myself and a colleague um, embarked on this project. We'd never written a book before, but that wasn't going to stop us. We had the contacts. Um, so we were going to put this handbook together and obviously our own experience um, as well. So what we did is we tackled um, all the different genres that um, you might use within a studio. So everything from news, um, soap operas, um, big entertainment 
entertainment shows like The Voice. Um, and we, we looked at case studies for each of those different genres. So as I said, we looked at The Voice, um, the Got Talent brand, and we went all over the world um, collecting these case studies and putting together this handbook full of scripts and, and useful tips to, to help um, teach that that genre because it's really difficult actually it's quite mystifying when a student first goes into the studio to see all of the different banks of monitors and how it all comes together so that was a really useful um it's a teaching guide for us as much as anything but um we were incredibly proud of that and launched it at the british film institute and and did a u.s um book signing at south by southwest as well so um so that was a useful thing to do next slide please um, as you've heard, I started, it was really strange after years, 20 years of being behind the camera, I started to do some media commentating, which I started during my academic years. And, and now obviously I do this um, as speaking on behalf of the Guild and on behalf of the industry about different issues. Um, so I'm talking there, I think about Brexit, which is um, not, maybe not a fun topic, but um, we'll come on to that a little bit later during the lecture. Next slide, please. And as you've heard, um, I need to have done these slides because Jack did me such an amazing introduction. Um, you can see I've been uh, or working on lots of different boards at the moment. So currently on the um, British Film Commission National Advisory Board. And, and you've heard um, Jack go through some of those. And the reason I mention this again for our students and graduates that um, are watching, it's really important to start connecting with these networks. Make sure you're getting onto the newsletters. Most will offer a free newsletter. I know BAFTA has their Guru series and so forth so that you know what's going on and obviously at the moment it's actually really useful because there's so many webinars happening um, you can jump onto those but make sure you're always saying thank you to the guest speaker or connecting with them afterwards because that's how you start to develop that relationship um, and rapport so um, so as you can see I'm, I'm very well connected with with the different networks um, which obviously feeds back into um, into my role now as, as CEO of the production guild next slide please so seven months ago, I took the leap uh, in the middle of a pandemic to become the uh, the new chief executive officer for the Production Guild. A really poignant moment in world history, but also film and TV history, because we had just stopped production really when um, when I got the job, and I suddenly thought, will there be an industry still? How is this going to going to shape? But um, I'm always one for a challenge. And I thought this is an amazing point in, in time to really make a mark on the industry and to really contribute um, to make that happen. So, uh, so here we are. Next slide, please. So the Production Guild of Great Britain, if you don't know about um, our network already, um, is a membership organisation for professionals working in production, working across grades in the production office, the producers, production managers, accounts, directing, location management, post-production and visual effects. So, you know, all of that makeup of that production team. As well as our membership, we have over 100 business partners and affiliates ranging from studios, SVODs, through to production service companies. So everything from Netflix, Warner Brothers and everything else, uh, broadcasters um, in between are, are connected with us. And our vision is all about being the best in production. We work with film and high-end television and there's a, a, an accreditation process to, to become part of our um, membership. Um, as I said, our members work on the biggest films across the world and, and in the UK from James Bond through to The Crown. Um, absolutely everything will probably have a Production Guild uh, member working on it. Next slide, please. So we kind of come back to, to the start, really, which is um, the start of the lecture. So as I said, pushing past the pandemic, we hope we're pushing past the pandemic. We're certainly moving forward as, as if we are. Um, and what's next for film and, and television? So um, these are some of my thoughts and some of the themes, and I'm sure we'll explore some of them more in the questions that, that may follow. As I said, I can't tell because I can't see you all in the audience which bits you might like more than, than others. So um, I'll keep talking and, and hopefully in the questions, you'll, you'll pick up on the bits that you most want to explore. Next slide, please. So, so many stats I could give you about the shape of the UK film and TV global 
economic success story. The cre creative industries represent a global success story, contributing 115.9 billion in 2019, accounting for 5.9% of the UK GVA. And as I said, I've got so many stats here. Um, film production spend in the UK increased by 24% in the last five years. High-end television spend increased by 93% over the last five five years with 51% increase in 2019. Film and high-end television forecast to reach 6 billion by 2024-25. So I don't need to tell you and to tell your fantastic um, faculty here that film and television and the creative industries is strong and a degree in this area is certainly looking very, very good. So all is going brilliantly and then the pandemic stops and like the rest of the world, film and television production stopped. Next slide, please. And I think, you know, it was just a shock, wasn't it, for everyone in every sector. And it seemed almost impossible. How could we possibly get film and TV production started again? If you think about a big film set, there's hundreds of people involved. There's multiple departments, you know, which cuts across different sectors from construction, makeup, um, set design, you know, so many different things, as well as the technical roles and, and all of those production roles. So a monumental feat to even consider how we might go about that. And this is obviously a year ago, really, isn't it? To, pretty much to the day that this happened. Next slide, please. So what was quite fantastic is the industry really came together and really collaborated and worked side by side. So the British Film Commission was really instrumental in, in leading this effort and bringing together the um, industry bodies, the screen agencies, productions, broadcasters, um, studios to sit down and put together a comprehensive roadmap um, of how we could make programmes and films safely. Um, so they put together these COVID measures and the summer of 2020, we managed to get production started again. And there were some real trailblazers here. So Jurassic World 3 Dominion was, was one of those. Um, I think they had put together 500 page dossier of how they would get their amazing machine back into, into action and very much was feeding back to the, the British Film Commission as to what they were doing and how it was working and, and, and back and forth. And I think they did something like 40,000 tests, COVID tests on their production teams to enable that to continue. Um, and War of the Worlds is, is very much credited as one of the first television series to get back in action, which I know has connections to the, to the West. And again, we'll come on to that a little bit more um, as we go through. So some real trailblazers and some real innovation um, happening to allow this to, to, to continue. And obviously, you know, the number of jobs and, and so forth um, involved in that. So remote working, we saw some amazing um, technology to allow edits to be happening from home. My husband works for Sky. I think he was running Sky Studios from our dining room table for a while, which was never, ever possible before. Um, voiceovers being recorded. I mean, so many technological advances have happened and things that we will hold on to, actually, don't even when what life returns to whatever our new normal is. The other big feat was the production restart indemnity scheme, because great, we have the COVID measures, but who's going to ensure a production, you know, a multi-million pound production or TV series um, with all the things that could go wrong? So um, PACT, the Producers Alliance for Cinema and Television, were really instrumental in this, again, with consultation um, at lobbying government to get this 500 million pound fund put together, um, which was, you know, again, allowed for production to, to start and that scheme has been ex extended. Screen skills uh, were instrumental in putting together coronavirus basic awareness. Um, and I think they've had something like 50,000 people now take, take their basic training course. So again, just highlighting that awareness and the industry coming together to make all of this possible. Something the Production Guild, um, in a partnership with the British Film Commission, launched was a high-level COVID supervisor training programme, which we still have another cohort running at the moment. So what we recognised was 
we needed this new role of the, of the COVID supervisor that would work between the production management department and the health and safety departments to put in train all of these different measures. So in terms of production management, you know, there's now, um, you know, people coming in on shifts and one-way systems and so many different um, things to, to look at. And then health and safety would be doing all the medical testing and so forth as well. So we needed that sort of key role in place. And it's, you know, it's a tough, a tough gig because they, in a sense, could have the power to stop a production if, if, if things weren't working or compliance not being followed and so forth. So we've put together a really comprehensive program. Um, and this is for working again in film and high end television um, on big, you know, big budget productions. And what we've noticed is since adding those COVID measures, productions are costing between eight and 30 percent more. Um, which, you know, we're happy productions running. That's that's great. Um, so it is a lot of money, though, and you think of, of the budgets that we're, we're dealing with. So it's really important that good decisions are being made for safety, but also in terms of the, the practicalities as well of production. Next slide, please. So we recognised uh, at the end of last year some of the amazing innovations and outstanding achievements in our um, Production Guild Innovation Awards in association with Warner Brothers Studios Liebsden. And we, you know, we celebrated and recognised some of those productions that I've mentioned, like Jurassic World and War of the Worlds, Screen Skills, and um, had a celebration about those achievements because we needed some good news stories. Um, we really did. So, and, and that's available on YouTube if you want to have a look at some of those case studies, because it really is quite interesting to hear how these productions managed to, to get back in action. Next slide, please. So after all of that drama, uh, figures last, uh, last month revealed a really fantastic achievement with film and high-end TV spend of 2.34 billion. So we were only down about 20% overall on where we, where we should be uh, or on previous. And we had a really strong last quarter. So things are looking really, really healthy again. Next slide, please. So it's great. We have all of this content happening and, and the kind of global talent that we have in, in this country. But we need more studio space. And that's certainly something the industry and um, the British Film Commission and partners have, have really been working hard on. And we have some fantastic examples of additional investment happening around the country. And I'll, I'll just give you some of those. Uh, so Sky's expansion of Elstree valued at 230 million, Pinewood Studios investment of 450 million, Oxford 80 million, the Netflix production hub at Shepperton, Ashford's 250 million, and of course, the Bottle Yard Studios at Bristol, which I'm guessing you're most familiar with. Next slide, please. Uh, and I have got notes because I'm sure there are probably people from Bottle Yards here. So I want to make sure I don't get any of this wrong. And I'm sure they, they will pop up in the, in the Q&A uh, to correct me if, if I do. But the Bottle Yard Studios is the largest film and TV studio in the west of England with a seven acre site obviously working closely alongside Bristol's film office, which assisted more than 250 productions to carry out nearly a thousand filming days in 2019-20, which is incredible. The studios and or on location in Bristol generated 17 million to Bristol's economy in 2019-20 and almost 700 jobs were generated which is fantastic. And some of the productions, I'll read some of them out. Hopefully I won't miss any out. So currently active, we have The Offenders for BBC Amazon Studios, starring Stephen Merchant and Christopher Walken, Becoming Elizabeth, the TV quiz show Tipping Point, the Netflix sci-fi series, The Last Bus. Oh, and there's so many that happened last year as well. Pursuit of Love, War of the Worlds, which is a real trailblazer, which I've mentioned. Agatha Christie's thriller, The Pale Horse. Oh my goodness, it goes over the page. The Salisbury Poisonings. My goodness, so very much. I've missed lots out, but you can see some of the fantastic um, productions that you have going on on your doorstep in Bristol, which I would love to be there today, but I'm, I'm home in Berkshire today. But anyway, uh, next slide, please. And great news. 
that your studios are on track for 12 million expansion from the West of England combined authority investment, which will see capacity increase from eight to 11 stages, which is brilliant news. I'm sure I'm, I hope to hear some comments on that from people in the audience as well. I'm conscious of time, so I will move on. In Next slide, please. So in part, some of the demand for content is all of this added streaming services that, that we now have and, and has got us through the pandemic, I think. I think I can um, kind of punctuate my various lockdowns by what I was watching, whether it was Tiger King in the summer um, and so forth. So uh, we've really relied on that, that, that level of content, haven't we? And the figures are incredible. I mean, I can't even keep up to date. I, was, I just checked just before I went live here. Um, Disney Plus accrued 100 million users. It was I had it in my notes as 95 million, but latest um, data is they've had 100 million since the launch in November 2019. Netflix subscribers are now 204 million and growing all the time. So you can see the, the demand, um, demand there. So they've been a real winner during this pandemic. I suppose the loser has been the cinema and we'll have to see what happens with distribution models. We've seen films be delayed. We saw Wonder Woman go to HBO release and so forth. So we'll have to see how this pans out. I really hope we get back to the cinema. I miss the cinema, um, but you can't deny the, the rise of the, of the streaming services. Next slide, please. So in the middle of wrestling with the pandemic, we've got Brexit just sneaking alongside. Um, I don't want to sort of change the mood of the evening, but, um, but that's a challenge for, for the industry uh, for, and for the country as well, just in terms of how we navigate through this. We have a 1300 page trade cooperation agreement that we're working through now and the practicalities of what that means for film and television, particularly they're looking at, you know, issues around movement of goods, movement of people, um, you know, and how we do that. We're used to cabotage rules. So there's lots of added production, uh, production processes to do, which is a big piece of work. And we will get there. It will it will work. But, um, you know, there's there's an added pressure there to to get those systems in place. Uh, I presented uh, last month at a DCMS select committee looking at creative visas and what the outcomes might be there. Um, we're looking at doing a series of bilateral deals. So um, so there's more to come in that space. But but we're confident that as world class global content makers, our European partners will want to work with us and we will find ways to, to get over some of those um, some of those issues. But you know, there's a bit to work through uh, at the moment. So uh, so watch this space. Thank you. Next slide. So just a couple more themes before um, I close and, and move over to questions. So I'm just checking the time that I'm still OK. Um, skills gaps. So I know you have an amazing uh, film and television and, and creative industries faculty here, and I'm sure you have very good graduate outcome survey results um, for getting grads into, into employment. I'm sure someone will, will let me know uh, where you rank in, in the league tables. I'm sure it's very good. Um, but having run film and media departments and, and uh, schools myself, I know what it's like when students arrive, you know, they're very fixed on becoming a producer or a director. And, and that's absolutely fine. But do have a think about and to students listening, there are other roles and the industry has some real skills shortages and skills gaps. So they could be interesting career paths for you. So a big area is production accounts. So you don't have to be an accountant to be a production accountant. There's lots of production management techniques in there as well. So we do a lot of work and a lot of training courses. We're doing one with Netflix at the moment to help upskill um, that area. So I think it's, you know, thinking about and for universities to think about how they can address some of those skills gaps, because they may not sound like the sexiest roles to um, an 18 year old who wants to move into film and TV. Um, particularly, but there's really interesting career paths. Visual effects is, an, is another big area um, that we need uh, more skills in as well. So um, again, interested to pick up on any of those themes in, in the questions um, later as well. The other thing to think about 
again, these are massive topics that I'm just sort of throwing in, I guess, but um, it's about diversity, uh, you know, there's a diversity and inclusion, really, in terms of, you know, in terms of all areas, really, we you know, we want all the different voices represented in our film and television production teams. And we're failing at that a little bit at the moment. Uh, I wrote a chapter about females and film schools. And um, the essence for me was my particular film school was 50-50 male, female. Um, and they, you know, did equally as well. But what happens beyond those entry level jobs? Why are the figures not translating when you get to those mid-level um, career points? Why do we see so many women leave the industry? Why are the director's stats not as high? We suddenly see them drop to like 12%. Some genres only 0% in sci-fi, for example. So there's some kind of disconnect. And again, how can we better um, better prepare our graduates for that longevity of their careers beyond just entry level because I think universities are doing a pretty good job quite often at getting them into those first jobs but how do we um, retain um, that talent across you know across all um, all different sections of society next slide please so just as I conclude this section, um, I really want to sort of speak to the students and, and graduates really to say, you know, we need content, we need your talent, you can see the industry is strong. What is it you want to say about the world? And I think that's the fantastic thing about university, it gives you that chance to find who you are. Um, and tell your story, don't let anything stop you. Go for it. Thank you. Lindsay, thank you ever so much for what felt like a, a whirlwind tour of everything <laughs> the, production, the Production Guild and, and you uh, have, have been doing, particularly during the pandemic. So thank you ever so much for your insight and the breadth of your talk. It touched upon so many themes and it was really, really um, detailed and inspirational for our student audience in particular. So. I'm going to go straight to our questions, if that's okay with you, Lindsay. And we have a couple of uh, pre-submitted questions. Um, the first one is, how do you suggest we as people and the government should support the arts through this time in an environment which seems to be against us? What can we do? <laughs> wow, that's, that's a lot, isn't it? Um, and I think it's interesting because different sectors within the arts have been harder hit than others. As I said, film and television, we managed to um, get the production wheels turning again, but theatre, music events have been much harder hit. And I hope that that's um, turning a corner now. I mean, there have been some government schemes. I know there's been the Excluded UK um, scheme uh, or kind of campaign as well uh, with freelancers. So it has been a really, really difficult time. But we have seen amazing examples of collaborations, innovation, whether it's been drive-in theatres and, um, you know, all kinds of different things happening. So it, it's really difficult. I just hope, I hope we're turning a corner now. As I said, film and television has been slightly, well, less hit than than theatre and, and music, but um, I certainly hope we're turning a corner now. Thanks, Lindsay. Um, on a related theme, and, and the, the winds of positivity are, are in these questions, but on a related theme, <laughs> um, we have another pre-submitted question, which is, will cinema going survive the pandemic? I know you touched upon that in your talk, so what are your thoughts? Um, I, I re we really, really hope so, but you can't deny looking at as I said, distribution models and what some of the big films have, have chosen to do. I know that, you know, we're all keen to get to get back to the cinema. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a really difficult, um, difficult time. But I think I think we're confident that, that it will return. Um, but the rise of SVODs, as I touched on in the in the um, lecture, is certainly interesting and certainly disrupting some of those business models and distribution models that we have been so so you know known um, for so long. Thank, thank you, Lindsay. Um, on a different tact altogether, and this is looking particularly your role in the production guild. Uh, we have a question from Isabel, who, who may well be a student or, or on, on the entry level part of her career. 
which is, are there opportunities for students or graduates to get involved with production guild Great Britain? To get involved in the production guild, Derek? Um, yeah. we, um, we do run some entry programs, so, uh, and we do have some educational partnerships. So we work with some universities already in a formalized way. So the University of Hertfordshire, the National Film and Television School, we run um, trainee production accountant um, programs so um, and that's sort of like a, in a, in line with their professional development modules they get a boot camp with us and then um, go onto our register to to work on you know the various features and so forth that we have so we do have some programs we are a um, I suppose mid-level and, and sort of upwards in terms of membership um, per se but we do have some uh, some university schemes and we certainly do some talks as well so please do link up with us on LinkedIn social media um, and follow along as well and, and maybe maybe we can do a partnership with Yui as well so maybe James I'll be talking to you about that how we can um, formalize some links there going forward and then there'll certainly be some. <laughs> that would be brilliant thank you Lindsay I'll take you up on that offer I'll contact you <laughs> later on. Um, so we have we have a question here from uh, Georgia Williams I hope she doesn't mind me uh, reading her name and it says, thank you, Lindsay. This one's received a few likes. So this one's obviously a, a hot topic for members of our audience. Thank you, Lindsay. Do you feel that your creative background makes you more creative as a leader in your CEO board positions? And it's, if so, in what ways and how? Oh, that's a really good question. Yes, I, th I think so, because I've come from a, um, a particularly factual and entertainment background so when we ran our awards program I was very clear on the vision that I wanted and how I would like that to look but also I think being a creative gives you um, a thick skin because you have to get used to your ideas not always being you know the first one being taken up for example you become quite agile you become a problem solver um, so yeah I think that's an absolutely brilliant question and I definitely think um, I draw on those creative skills and I still love any of the creative aspects aspects of the role of, of putting a project together um, in that way. So yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lindsay. Um, now, you mentioned in your talk that there are um, shortfalls in certain areas. Uh, I think you mentioned production accounts, VFX, uh, as, mm -hmm. as areas mm -hmm. where more um, graduates and more people should, should be coming through the pipeline. Um, so, so we have a question here, um, which is, what, in your opinion, are the best opportunities that graduates and college leavers could explore during or, or, or post this pandemic period? I know you've highlighted those, but what are the ways into to the industry? What can they be doing to, to make themselves busy? And, and you mentioned early on in your talk, you were sending 100, I, th I think you mentioned 100 or hundreds of letters to gain that work experience. Would you like to elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I do appreciate it. it is a little bit more difficult at the moment in terms of perhaps work experience on sets because they're trying to limit the number of people in some instances. Some I'm hearing need more to help with marshalling and, and so forth. So it is a tricky time, but use the time. Always be productive. So I would say make sure you're developing your um, content making skills. Be really mindful of your social media. You can start you know, tweeting industry topics. So it's really, I suppose, creating your own brand. And as I talked about at the end of, of the presentation, you know, developing your voice. We now have our, you know, our iPhones um, with cameras that you can shoot little videos on or do little video blogs or vlogs. Um, there's so much that you can be doing. I think to just wait and think, oh, well, I have to wait for the pandemic to finish before I can get back to a production company or be on set. You need to be using the time. And as I said, you know, don't wait for the phone to ring. You want to be putting your message out there and letting people know that um, who you are and, and I suppose what your USP is as well. What is it that really interests you and what do you want to, to say about things? It may be that you um, speak languages and you could work on, you know, a certain program that needs that you know just start really thinking um deeply about what it is that that makes you who you are really but um 
just use the time as, as wisely as you possibly can. Um, you're not out of work. You are creating your own independent production company. You are content making all the time, writing scripts, writing ideas. So there's so much that you can do so that you are ready to engage. There's, as I mentioned about the networks, there's so many um, you know, websites and, and newsletters that you can be connected with. So, you know, BAFTA, Women in Film and TVs, um, Production Guild, you know, there's RTS. There's so many um, things there that you can get connected with. Make sure you're joining those free webinars. Make sure you ask a question so that you get noticed and then you can follow it up with the, the person giving the talk. So there's lots of things you can do. It's not getting disheartened. Um, as I said, I had a moment of panic when I was at university and realised what it felt like. Everyone else knew somebody in the industry or already had done amazing work experience and, and what was I going to do? Um, but I was really systematic. I got the list of production companies. I identified the 200 that I was interested in or that I could geographically get to. And I just sent five letters on my handwritten notepaper um, every day until eventually, um, you know, it happened. So... It will happen. Don't give up tenacity. Thanks, Lindsay. That's really motivational for all the students in, in the audience. And tenacity, I think, is a, a lifelong um, yeah. skill that any of us can, can benefit from. Thank you. Um, so we have a question here, which is a, a two-part question. It's from uh, someone you'll be familiar with, Jane, Jane Roscoe, who you mentioned earlier on. And she asks, how do we work together to convince broadcasters and funders to take risks on new talent? And the second part of the question is, how do we do the same to, to commit those broadcasters and funders to diversity? So let's take the first one first, which is around new talent. Oh, brilliant question, Jane. I thought the first bit was, how do we work together? I thought that was the pause, and then you added that bit. Um, no, it's such a great question, and it's something um, at the Production Guild we've put together a diversity inclusion action um, group, which is again looking at new talents and emerging talent. And you're absolutely right, we talk about it, but unless the broadcasters or the studios take what they perceive as a risk on a new voice, we just end up with more of the same. So it is it is really challenging. There are some, some schemes happening at the moment. So Channel 5 has obviously got their um, indie uh, working with um, diverse indies um, scheme. Netflix has committed £100 million to emerging new talent. So they're really... Um, you know, staking out um, a claim on that. So, so yeah, it's such a good question because there's always that element of, well, you know, we're spending hundreds of millions on this production or series, you know, we need um, a safe pair of hands. And I remember, this is going back 20 years ago, and I better not name the broadcaster, but there used to be a preferred list of directors and they were the only ones that you could book for your blue chip documentary series. And if they weren't available, you know, you just had to sort of wait in the queue. And there was only about eight names on there. So I think we have progressed um, since then. And there wasn't, I think it was maybe one or two female names um, and certainly very little diversity. So it is getting better but we do need trailblazers and, and, as you say, commitment from the broadcasters to, to make that happen and then to not have that ever-changing carousel of commissioning editors that, that kind of get moved on. So you just start to get that, that scheme underway and then they're gone again. So, you know, commitment to that, longevity of those schemes and programmes to really make them work. Thanks, Lindsay. Uh, Lindsay, you gave us a really good insight into the the ways in which production was able to maintain and, and kickstart itself again uh, last year with the, with the uh, benefit of the health and safety measures that were being put in place. There's, there's a question here relating to the scale of production, which is, will the pandemic force a rethink of production scale, leading perhaps to smaller scale productions and less reliance on blockbusters? I I don't think so um, in the longer term. Um, I'm obviously working in um, film and high-end television, so they are they do tend to be the, the, the bigger productions. Um, so we're not seeing that at the moment, and certainly the commitment to the extra stage space that I went through, the bottle yard being um, a big space for that as well, we're not seeing that in a, in a trend um, at the moment. I think some of the pandemic 
measures will stay in place in terms of the hygiene, um, it's going to be very hard to suddenly go, oh, it's all fine, don't worry about um, all of those things now. Um, uh, so I think there will be, um, as I said, the role of the COVID supervisor will probably stay, or we might re rename it, but will probably stay in, in place for quite some time. Um, so that's a big, big change. But I don't think it means scaling down production, certainly not in the area that I'm um, working in at the moment. There's no trend for that at the moment. Okay, thank you. Uh, a question from uh, Andrew Spicer, professor at the University of the West of England. Um, what do you see as the value of public service broadcasters in the new media ecology? Uh, does the BBC, for instance, need more support? I think this may relate to your to your points about the, the rise of streaming services uh, as well. Yeah, it's, that's a very good question. And I have written papers about this previously in my previous role, um, but I'm, I'll, I'll sort of come back to my production guild um, hat, I suppose. I mean, it's, it, you know, I'm very supportive of, of the BBC and, um, you know, the value for money I can see. But I have to say, looking at my 16 year old son, he never goes to terrestrial TV to watch anything. Um, and seeing BBC Three has moved um, back to um, to television. They're now saying the new youth chat, youth uh, demographic is now 25 to 45, where before it would have been 16 to 34. So I think in terms of uh, viewing trends, things have changed so very much. So it's about how the BBC moves, so moves with that time to so think about the generations coming through. Um, you know, there's obviously going to be lots of change, and I've I've sat in lots of different um, talks from John Whittingdale, MP, um, debating what might happen. There's obviously the the U-turn around the over 70s paying for for license fees and and so forth as well. I mean, it's how you fund it, isn't it, as well? So there's so many big, um, big decisions to make there. And I think there will be, um, obviously, there's going to be a, a real look at that as well as, as we go forward. But, you know, they're competing now with, as I said, the Netflixes with 200 million and, and the viewing figures that um, a new series can get on. Uh, on that platform, you know, we're hearing sort of 68 million will watch across a weekend when a new big, you know, hit starts, The Crown or whatever it might be. So there's so much competition, um, and the BBC really does need to have a rethink about how that fits into that into that world. So I'm being a bit diplomatic, um, but uh, yeah, there's certainly changes afoot, I'm sure. Okay, thanks, Lindsay. Um, reverting back to the, the the pandemic, we can't take our, our eyes off of it, um, for better or for worse. Um, there's, a, there's a question here about the pandemic and its impact possibly upon gender. So it says, is there any evidence to suggest that the, the pandemic could have helped women in the battle for equality within the industry? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting one. Um, Yes and no. I mean, we had the homeschooling kind of in the middle of all of this as well. And I know, you know, both male and female were, um, were, were across that. But, um, but, but anyway, I think for myself, I stepped away from production when I became a mother. It was too hard to juggle. I had a, a husband also working in television. And between us, um, the working hours um, was, was almost, you know, impossible. We tried it different ways. Um, with uh, me going back part-time, him going back part-time and so forth. But it became, you know, it's a 24-7 type of job and, and trying to juggle all of those things was hard. And I loved production, so that was a really difficult decision um, to make and obviously took me off into another direction, which is fantastic because I'm, I'm here now in this, in this role, so it's all good. But, um, you know, there was no possibility of editors working from home. So my husband wouldn't have been able to do a school run and, and, and do anything like that because he was locked into the to the live studio. Um, and for myself, you know, I needed to be in the office for, for those hours and, and homeworking wasn't um, de rigueur in, in quite the same way. So 
I, I hope so. As I said, I really hope that we don't let go of the good bits of things that we've um, put in place and we look to see how we can develop that and develop a more flexible workforce. Um, Warner Brothers Studios Leaveston, um, where I'm based, has introduced Wonderworks, which is um, a child care facility on site. I mean, if I'd have had that um, you know, 15, 16 years ago, that would have been incredible and would have meant I would have stayed in a production role. Um, so there's so much work to do and it's, you know, some obvious stuff like that, um, you know, flexible working, um, childcare facilities that can really retain the talent. Um, so I really hope it does, it does level up and just not mean it's, it's longer hours and, and you're just living, working nonstop, but I hope we can look at ways to enhance that and, and make things better for, for, um, women coming through the ranks. And men and, and, and carers as well, of course, of, of elderly parents as well. So, you know, it's not just exclusive to, to mothers, but um, across all of those different areas. OK, thanks, Lindsay. Uh, I'm going to group a couple of questions um, which have a very much a student focus, if that's OK. Um, I, I'm assuming they're from students. They're anonymous, some of them. Um, so... <laughs> There's one question here which chimes with an earlier part of the conversation. Uh, what are some more examples, if you can, of entry level or skills gaps or graduate type rules that we can we can get ourselves into? And it's either from a, a recent or a current um, student. Uh, so I think there's a there's a real interest in finding out where are the gaps in the market in the industry. Sure. So as I said, production accounts is, is a massive area and you'll see so many schemes being run by Screen Skills, by our programme with, with Netflix um, and other broadcasters as well. So do have a look at that um, and, and sort of understand that. And you'd be coming in not as a production accountant, you'd be, um, you know, assistant um, working in that department. So and it's working across massive, you know, massive productions as well. So so to do think about that. Production secretaries is is, an, is another area. Um, I've mentioned visual effects, but you probably need to have um, obviously some un, some understanding in that. But also post-production is um, is another area. So workflows around that, and particularly as we've gone virtual um, as well. So there's more um, processes to look at in, in that role. So the post-production coordinators and supervising roles, so not necessarily all technical. Um, but some of those workflow processes as well. Um, the COVID supervisor role, so that's a high level, but there's COVID supervisor coordinators. So because the industry is so busy at the moment, we were imagining that coordinators, existing coordinators and location managers might sort of move over to some of those roles, but there's a real shortage there. You will need to get some additional training, but they are, there are free courses and training courses available um, to look at that. So, so just sort of explore around, um, around the areas I know you might be fixed on being a producer or director, but just see what, what the path takes you. For me, I wanted to work in um, in documentaries and I ended up working on talk shows to start with. So don't be closed off to one particular genre. Um, get the experience where you can um, and, and take it. And, and it all helps you develop your own style and, and your voice um, as you go through. And it all kind of joins up in um, in the end. So yeah, just keep an open mind. Okay, thanks, Lindsay. There's a couple of other um, quite specific questions about some of the information you were presenting uh, earlier on in your talk. One is regarding the data that you were talking about in relation to the rise of Disney Plus subscriptions and, and Netflix. Uh, for the benefit of, of, of audience members, where could that information be accessible? Is, is it available to students, for example? You can literally just, I literally just Googled what the latest figures were, to be honest. Um, I usually get my figures from um, British Film Institute um, or DCMS. You can go onto DCMS's um, uh, website um, as well, or UKTI. But um, I just literally just checked, um, just checked the latest subscriber um, figures. The trade press is really good, which I'm sure your university library, a virtual library has access to. So broadcast, Screen International, um, variety, you know, they're really key industry um, texts that will will really talk about the latest trends. So um, please, students, graduates, get onto their 
um, free newsletters, get onto their Twitter pages and you'll get these kind of alerts and announcements all the time. But it's really important to feel current and up to date and finger on the pulse. So if you are asked these questions in an interview, um, you know, you, you know. So it is much easier to do now to be connected in that way. Okay, thank you, Lindsay. Uh, we have a question there from Stephen Roberts, and it's um, relating to um, the regionalization of production. And you spent some time in your talk referring to, to the Botiard and the recent investment Botiard has managed to secure, which is fantastic news for the region. Um, and the question is, what role should the Guild play in regionalizing or helping to regionalize production, as in the case of Botiard, for example? How can how can it support job creation outside of, of London? Brilliant. This is my new business plan for the year ahead. So if, if, if he can tell me, that would be amazing. We absolutely are committed um, and, and, you know, and most of the screen agencies are saying the same and industry bodies to um, increasing our regional membership and to connecting um, and making sure our training schemes that we're running and um, all our information is connecting there. So we are absolutely committed to that. Um, at the moment, our membership for, for regional is, is only about 10% overall. So we've got some huge work to do this year. Um, and I have got some, got some plans afoot. And as soon as I can get out on the road and leave my house, I will be coming to, to Bristol and to the regions um, to connect and, and work on some of those um, initiatives as well and, and to, we're looking at creating more hubs as well um physical hubs when you know it's not so necessary at the moment but when when the world comes back again um in the same way so we are really committed to that and would love to have a conversation um further to see what we can do to help to help with as we talked about skills gaps um what we can do as a guild to support Thanks, Lindsay. Um, you mentioned there when the world comes back again, and it, does, it certainly does feel like that. And there's a there's a question here about the lessons learned, I guess, from from the pandemic, and whether, in your opinion, production practice will will change above and beyond. I'm assuming the, the health and safety measures that you've already referred to. Is there anything around logistics, creativity, the way we collaborate, the way we do? editing, for example, that will, will change, do you think, as a result of our work in practices through the pandemic? Um, absolutely. I think, you know, like uh, many sectors, there will be a hybrid of, of um, office working or on-set working and, and home working um, where you can. I mean, I think for creatives, even though we can do so much functionally on a, on a Zoom or a video platform, there's nothing better than being in that room and having that kind of energy and chemistry um, to, to, to really kind of make things make things sing. But, um, but yes, absolutely, I, I, you know, ITV have already said they're going to um, release some of their buildings as, as other broadcasters and, and companies as well. Um, editing from home or remotely is certainly going to continue which um which is really interesting to see so yes there will be will be changes um afoot but i hope in the right places um for sure so i think we're all getting used to how to to use our working week i suppose in terms of um having that headspace if you're scripting or or writing and, and in terms of meetings and those creative meetings and so forth as well so I think, um, yes, I think there will be um, changes. And as I said, we want to hold on to those good bits that are working well and, and get back to the good bits that we miss um, similarly. So, yes, hopeful for the future. Thanks, Lindsay. So before we get to those, those good bits and the horizon, hopefully, um, just reflecting on, on working practice during the pandemic, that we have a question about adaptive management strategy and I think we're, we're referring here to coping um, throughout the, the the uncertainty that the pandemic afforded us it, as a busy professional yourself wearing multiple hats uh, often simultaneously is there any anything that you reflect on from that time that you have taken on board and, and will take on board for, for for the rest of your professional career? Any any management tips, strategy that you in particular have learned and will take forward? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, again, it's a good question. I think we're still, um, there's some time to reflect still once we've come through this, because it's been unbelievably busy. And, you know, obviously, we're in, I'm incredibly lucky. And for those that have managed to keep working through the pandemic, incredibly lucky. But we've never worked harder. I mean, if you think about it, um, coming to do this event today, that would have probably taken up all day by the time I travelled um, and, and got there. But I've already done probably four more Zooms, another presentation just before this. Um, so the, the workload that we managed to fit into our days is is incredible i'm not sure if necessarily a good good thing but um but but you know but we've done it and and move forward so um i think there's there's practical things that i've said to my team and connecting points that we've been you know were instinctive to me i suppose to do so making sure that we you know we checked in daily were people okay um so it wasn't all just work 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 because it, it does feel like you're micromanaging because all you've got to rely on is is these video meetings and emails. So it's constantly sending, have you done this? Have you done this? Whereas if you're in the office, you would, you know, you'd be able to see things were happening. So lots of communication um, techniques. And I suppose, you know, saying to the to the team, you know, don't be offended if I send a quick email or, you know, just so that people feel comfortable. And, and you know, if you're working on your own, you know, I suppose it's easy to get paranoid about things and, and so forth. So mental health is you know is very much on the agenda and and I think it's all hit us at different points during the pandemic we think we're all right and then just realize you know we're living against quite a difficult backdrop um to, to play things out not seeing family in the way you normally would and so forth so it has been really really busy and I'm always really keen um, to keep moving forward and to be productive and to be able to have something good to show um, at the end of it as well. So I've kept us busy. Maybe my team feel feel differently. But um, I, I think those check-in points are, are really important um, and really understanding how your team works. So for me, that was a challenge because I, I came in um, in the middle of a pandemic and everyone was working from home. Um, so I had to try and get to know the team um, quite quickly. We did manage to get back into the office a day a week um, at various points in different lockdowns. I can't remember what lockdown we're in anymore. But um, so that was really beneficial to sort of have those connecting points. But, you know, resilience is is important and, and everyone's different. And I suppose we've I've had to respect with the team when, you know, we're all feeling at different points during, during the pandemic um, and just try and use those those creative moments and our strengths to to our best. Okay, thanks, Lindsay. Uh, we're coming towards the end of the questions. So there's 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 one out, outstanding question, and then if, if we don't have any more, I have one question. If it, if we have time, uh, which I'd okay. like to ask. Um, so the last question um, that available to me is is you refer to case studies uh, on, on YouTube during your presentation. It's from Jeff. And he says, could you please give some more details to help um, members of the audience find those? Oh, OK. So this is the um, Production Guild Innovation Awards. So in theory, I mean, I can share the link with you and, and you can disseminate. But in theory, I think if you just search Production Guild of Great Britain Innovation Awards, it should bring up our programme. It's only 25 minutes and then you'll see the different um, different award winners and they'll talk a little bit about what they did during the pandemic so Jurassic World being the example War of the Worlds and, and so forth so hopefully you should find that but if not I can share the link. Thank you Lindsay. Now two of our questioners have uh, responded to say thank you very much for giving up your time to answer uh, their questions individually which is which is great to hear. I don't have any further questions coming on this on the live stream so I'm going to ask one question if, if I'm permitted to. Um, you mentioned in your talk, and it, it struck me, about production costs rising from something like 8 to 30%. How does the industry absorb that additional cost? Is it just the case that production will have to absorb it, or is it the case that profit will, will be further squeezed, or does the, the additional cost get passed on? Yeah. I mean, it has to be absorbed, really. Um, and that's why it's harder for the smaller indies to to take that on um, when profit margins are are, are tight. Um, 
in, in that instance. And, and that's why in terms of the distribution models as well. So when you're thinking about, you know, what a Bond film might command in the cinema, which is billions um, and why they perhaps need to wait. To, you know, there's so many different things at, at play to sort of juggle um, to juggle all of this. But, yeah, it's had to be absorbed by by productions and the smaller indies have, have found it much tougher the longer term consequences of that do you think or is that not worth speculating on at this stage I, i'm positive <laughs> i think um obviously we're now building this into uh, into budgets when when the pandemic hit um obviously things were already in train and productions were already in train so so now for new productions coming through um we're a bit bit better placed to understand what the costs look like um we don't necessarily need all of that ppe that we did in the first instance you know is a bit more of a kind of approach of of what is actually needed and um as I said the role of the covid supervisor is really key in understanding the production management processes the budgeting processes and uh, against the health and safety um, aspect because we want everyone to be safe you know that's it, it's only telly it's only film you know we want everyone to be safe and well but it said it's huge figures um that, that we're talking about but the thought of, of film and television not continuing is a is a much worse um situation and we certainly need our box sets to um to get us through um whatever the world throws at us next and i want to get back to the cinema for sure so um so yeah we know absolutely we were just you, you <laughs> Okay, uh, Lindsay, the, the formal questions are, are, are over now. Um, all that's left for, for, for me to say is thank you ever so much for such an interesting, wide-ranging and detailed talk. Thank you for inspiring our students in the audience and other, student, other students across, um, uh, across the sector. And thank you ever so much for giving up your time. Uh, thank you, Lindsay. Okay. Well, thank you for having me and good luck everyone with careers. Good luck. Thank you. And that leads me to say this is the um, formal close of tonight's Bristol Distinguished Address. Thank you ever so much for joining us and thank you ever so much to our speakers. Good night. For more information about the Bristol Lectures series, including other podcasts from the series, visit uwe.ac.uk forward slash Bristol Lectures or follow hashtag Bristol Lectures. Mm -hmm.